Hey, welcome to episode 17 of the podcast, Never To Be Seen Again. I am your ever faithful host, Laura LeBlanc. So this week, in an attempt to organize my thinking process uh, when it comes to this podcast, I got a map so I could keep track of the states I have already covered. Um, What I realized is that I have not covered very many eastern states, so for the next few episodes, that's the area that we'll be in. For this episode, I decided to cover the first of the four corners and tackle Maine. It really wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. There are about 135 cases on NamUs, but the thing is that 112 of those are male cases. But I'm pretty sure I know why the males account for the majority. Uh, The majority of those male cases really included males that have gone missing at sea. So uh, if you think about it, Maine is known for its seafood industry, especially its lobster. So a lot of the disappearances are men who were on fishing vessels when they sank and they just haven't been located. I'm not covering any of those disappearances this week because, well, those cases are pretty straightforward and it's a little harder to locate people in the water, especially the cold water of the Atlantic Ocean. I do have eight non-water related disappearances for you this week, so it is going to be a pretty large episode. Four of those cases are females and four are males. Usually, uh, when I tell you about these cases, I try to rotate the order of the cases so that it goes like male-female or female-male. But I'm going to do something a little different this week and see how it works out. I'm going to tell you the cases in chronological order, starting with the oldest, and we'll just move forward in time. I think half of these cases are of uh, juveniles, um, if I'm remembering correctly, so... Uh, For those of you that don't like the juvenile cases, uh, you can skip through uh, to find the ones that aren't, or you can just wait for next week's episode. So let's just get into the cases since I have a lot to cover, and we'll start the cases off with the disappearance of Kathy Marie Moulton. She is case number 20DFME in the Doe Network case number MP3977 in NamUs, and she is on the Charlie Project. She is also a juvenile, so uh, her NCMEC number is 708865. So Kathy is a Caucasian female with brown hair and blue eyes. She was born on June 28th of 1955. She was 16 at the time of her disappearance, and she would be 64 now. She stood at five foot four and weighed 98 pounds at the time of her disappearance. Uh, Kathy's four bicuspid teeth may have been removed and she wore braces on her teeth. She also wore thick glasses with heavy dark colored plastic frames. She has scars on both of her feet from wart removal, a white spot on her left elbow and flat moles are scattered across her back. She was last seen wearing a navy blue all-weather coat, a navy blue pant dress, and brown leather shoes. So Kathy was born in Portland, Maine to Lyman and Claire uh, Moulton. Lyman and Claire later had 
two more daughters, Pamela and Kimberly, and Kathy was a big sister. They grew up in a white clappered house just down the street from Deering High School. Lyman uh, owned a used car business until his retirement in 1978. Lyman and Claire were firm but compassionate parents, and Kathy grew up to become a very compassionate person herself. She was quiet but always helpful, and she was thoughtful, often putting all of her feelings and thoughts into poetry. She also loved to dance. So in the summer of 1971, Lyman took uh, time off of work from his business and packed up the family. The Moulton family traveled for 81 days during that summer and visited places all throughout the U.S. and Mexico. It was during that trip uh, when Kathy turned 16. For her birthday, her parents promised her a gift from wherever she saw something that she liked. It was in Mexico where she found a distinctive leather handbag that she selected as her gift. After the summer, Kathy started her junior year at Deering High School. It was Friday, September 24th of 1971 when Kathy rushed home from school. She asked her dad to give her a ride into town so that she could go shopping. You see, she had a run in her pantyhose and she needed a new pair to wear to the YMCA dance later that evening. Claire, her mom, gave Kathy some money and asked her to pick up two tubes of toothpaste while she was out. She also gave Kathy some change for the bus ride home. Kathy put the few dollars and a house key into that brown leather handbag she had picked up in Mexico and walked out of the front door with her dad. Lyman dropped Kathy off in front of the New England Telephone and Telegraph office on the corner of uh, Mumberland and Forest Avenue at about 1.15 p.m. And she started walking towards Congress Street. A little over two hours later, Kathy stopped at Starbird Music to talk to her classmate, Carol Starbird. Kathy told Carol that she was hurrying home to take a shower before the dance and that she had spent her bus fare so she had to walk home. She told Carol that she would see her at the dance and walked out onto Forest Avenue to begin her walk home. The walk back to her house was about a mile and a half, but the first few steps of that mile and a half would be the last steps that anyone would see Kathy take. When Kathy didn't show up at home in time for dinner, her parents knew something was wrong. Uh, Kathy hadn't called to say that she would be late, which she would always do if that was the case. At 6.30, Kathy's parents called the police. She told the police, uh, her mom told the police that her daughter would never go anywhere without telling them, and she had never done this type of thing before. So, um, to Lyman and Claire's dismay, the police just kind of laughed them off. The dispatcher told Claire that she would have to wait 72 hours to report Kathy as missing. So, Lyman and Claire decide to do the initial work on their own. They call local hospitals and friends to see if Kathy was there. And after that was unsuccessful, Lyman drove down to the police station. He spoke to the desk sergeant who tried to tell him that Kathy being gone only for a few hours 
was not much of a concern, but Lyman wouldn't ease up, so he continued to persist uh, that something was wrong and that they needed to find Kathy. Finally, maybe just to shut him up, the desk sergeant let him file a missing persons report. For those next few days of Kathy's disappearance, and actually for about two years after, Moulton's life, uh, Moulton's life was turned upside down. Everything they and their other two daughters did was to ensure that Kathy could and would come home. The front door was never locked shut, and the phone was never out of earshot. Their schedules were rearranged, and Lyman and Claire never left the house together in case Kathy came home. And Kathy's room remained untouched so that when she did come home, everything would be the same. Sadly, though, um, this story never received much notoriety in the beginning. But eventually, the Moltons got in touch with the director of Portland's FBI office. And although the FBI couldn't start an official investigation without evidence of abduction, the director managed to get Kathy's picture to appear at the end of several episodes of the FBI, um, that's the name of the show, the FBI, starring uh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Uh, the Portland police had some issues of their own. You see, back in 1971, Portland police had no funding specifically allocated for missing persons. Not just that, uh, they, were, they were seeing a rash of youngsters, almost 200 a year, leaving home. And for those reasons, they seemed quite certain that Kathy was a runaway. After interviewing family and friends, Portland police filed Kathy's report with the hundreds of other reports of missing Portland teenagers. The Moltons very quickly realized that they would be doing much of the work in finding Kathy on their own. So not much happens in Kathy's case until early November <clears throat> of 1971. That's when the Moltons think that they have finally caught a break. Officials at Deering High School were cleaning out Kathy's locker when they found a phone number scrawled on a scrap of paper. Theories started to float about uh, this number and finally it felt like the Moltons had something to cling to for hope. Unfortunately, though, it was short-lived because they soon discovered that that phone number connected to Moulton's own used car lot. This incident would be the first in a line of dead-end clues. A Mr. Pinkman from the giant store in Brunswick picked up a boy and girl with an unusual-looking handbag and gave them a ride to the um, Brunswick Center. A caller reported that they had seen a girl matching Kathy's description hitchhiking on Route 88 in Falmouth. And a week before Kathy disappeared, Harvey Brown, a worker for the Parks Department, saw an African-American male about 20 years old in a 1965 or 1966 Pontiac with a damaged left fender and Massachusetts license plates approach a girl with glasses and long hair. That girl got into the car and they drove off. Some, some, actually most rumors, suggest that Kathy um, headed south, though. The mother of a boy named Alvin Drake, Alvin was often Kathy's dance partner, um, well, his mom reported to the police that the general talk around school was that Kathy went or was on her way to Boston. There was also a story about Kathy um, 
hearing a girl in study hall talk about having a good time in Boston and everyone around said that Kathy appeared interested, which to me doesn't seem like very much, but they thought that it meant that she wanted to go to Boston. Over the years, the Moltons also consulted a psychic, but that also fell through as it most often does. I think that perhaps the most interesting theory was that Kathy left on her own accord with a friend named Lester Everett. The claim is that uh, they may have been traveling together in a stolen 1963 Cadillac. There were reported sightings of Kathy, uh, Lester Everett, and another man working in the potato fields in a remote uh, Aristoke, I'm sorry, <laughs> Aristoke. Uh, county in northern Maine, about 300 miles from Portland. This uh, sighting was reported only a few weeks after Kathy's disappearance. The female believed to be Kathy kept saying that she wanted to go home. Those sightings were never confirmed, though, and eventually they did track down Lester Everett. Lester was alone, though, and he claimed that he didn't know where Kathy was. So the case grows cold. Uh, the lack of thorough investigation in the beginning uh, proved to be the demise of this case. Police tried to open the case back up in the 1980s, but nothing new came in and investigators were still in the same boat that they had been in before. Something interesting did happen in 1983, though. A hunter said he came across a skeleton in the woods near a sim... I'm sorry, I can't say any of these names... Smyrna, S-M-Y-R-N-A, Smyrna, Maine. He said the remains were surrounded by female clothing. Some investigators believe that the remains could be Kathy. The problem was that the hunter could not retrace his footsteps and they were unable, <clears throat> and he was unable to lead the police to the location of the body that he saw. The bones uh, were never seen again. Kathy's parents um, stayed in the same house with the same phone number waiting for Kathy to return or call home. Her family still holds out hope for her return. The case is still unresolved and Kathy's whereabouts remain a mystery. If anything is known about Kathy's disappearance, please contact the Portland Police Department and help Kathy's family find some closure. So here we go with case numero dos. Uh, this is the case of Kurt Ronald Newton. He is case number 96DMME in the Doe Network, case number MP22943 in NamUs, and he is also on the Charlie Project. He is a child, so his NCMEC number is 1227947. Kurt was born on June 28th of 1971, and he was four at the time of his disappearance. He would be 48 now. He is a Caucasian male with blonde hair and blue eyes. He was 3 foot 8 and 45 pounds when he disappeared. He was last seen wearing a navy blue jacket with baseball emblems uh, on it, a navy blue sweatshirt, a red jersey, red and black speckled corduroy pants, mismatched white socks, and brown high top shoes. So this story takes place in the chain of in Chain of Ponds, Maine, at the remote um, 
Natanez Point Campground, I'm sorry, about six miles from the Canadian border. Kurt, uh, his six-year-old sister, Kimberly, his mother, Jill, and his father, Ron, decided to go camping with their new-to-them tent trailer for the Labor Day weekend in 1975. Three other families from their hometown of Manchester, Maine, were planning on heading to the campground as well. The Newtons arrived on Friday, the first day of uh, the, they were the first of the group to arrive. That day, the family gathered wood along an abandoned logging road nearly a mile from the campsite. On Saturday, the other families uh, began to arrive, and Kimberly raced her bicycle through mud puddles while Kurt pedaled his big wheel uh, right behind her, trying to keep up. That night, all the families gathered around the campfire and told stories, laughed, and ate. They were just relaxing and enjoying their time together. On Sunday, September 1st of 1975, they woke up to heavy mist setting over the two ponds at the campground. Ron woke up and threw the last of the logs on the campfire to get the chill out of the air. Kurt didn't wake up till about nine because he was fighting off a cold. When he woke up, he was shivering cold, but he glad he <clears throat> he soon gladly found out that his uh, father had built the fire. Ron dressed Kurt for the uh, damp, chilly morning, after, and after eating breakfast, Jill grabbed her mud-soaked sneakers from the day before and headed, to, <clears throat> and headed with her friends to uh, the wash house about 50 yards away to clean her shoes off. Kim began playing a game and assumed that Kurt would ride his tricycle around the campsite. Ron got into his truck with his axe to go find more firewood firewood. Kurt hollered, Daddy, Daddy, as Ron drove away. Kurt was on his tricycle, riding behind him, trying to catch up. It was between 10 and 10.30 in the morning. From the campground, a a rut-strewn logging road runs north, parting the forest. An abandoned horse novel sits back from the road, nearly hidden by undergrowth, about a quarter of a mile from the Newton's campsite. Twelve-year-old Lou Ellen Hansen was walking near this area on her way back from a walk. She is startled when she sees a small boy pedaling away on his big wheel tricycle. She called out, saying, Hey, do your parents know where you are? The boy never replied, but instead kept pedaling away, and Lou Ellen turned around and continued towards the campground. That road where Llewellyn saw Kurt continues for another quarter mile then forks. At the fork, taking left leads to a small uh, campground dump on a knoll past a shaky bridge over a stream. Llewellyn's father, Jack, found the tricycle just before the steep rise leading to the dump. The tricycle was off of the road and near the edge of the woods. The positioning of the tricycle would remind investigators of a boy who had been told not to leave things on the road. Jack, who thought the tricycle had been discarded, picked it up, threw it on top of the trash heap, and then headed back to the campground. Back at the campsite, Jill is hanging her sneakers on the line. 
She hadn't been gone for more than 10 minutes, but she realized that she didn't see Kurt on his tricycle anywhere around. Jill and her friends started walking around asking other campers if they had seen a blonde boy in a big wheel tricycle. She began to think that Kurt must have gone with the men to get firewood, but then the men come around the corner and Kurt isn't with them. Now, they begin to worry a little more. They run into Jack, who told them how he had found that tricycle near the dump. So they all head to the dump, um, but there they find no Kurt, not even a sound. Jill was now extremely worried, but the men reassured her that Kurt must have thought his father was a little ways into the woods, so he must have gone in after them. They assured assured her that they would find him in no time. Authorities were called, including the main fish and uh, game wardens. But by the time they responded to the area, a small search party had uh, already farmed by uh, already been farmed by campers to comb the logging roads. Because Kurt was only four, and because the temperature was expected to drop to the twenties that night, more war- wardens were called in to assist with the search. By four p.m. 29 searchers were present, and they were confident that they would be able to find Kurt before nightfall. So, um, soon, a warden service helicopter and a search plane uh, was in was in the air and ground searching, and people were grass ser- ground searching the roads and areas near the dump. Kurt was fascinated with helicopters. So Jill was sure that he would respond to the warden's calm voice calling from the helicopters above the trees, but he didn't appear. That night, the temperatures dropped to 26 degrees. But still, in the cold darkness, wardens and searchers combed through the woods with lanterns and flashlights trying to find Kurt. By first light on Labor Day, a bloodhound team scented on Kurt's pajamas. The hounds bolted from the dump, ran 10 yards, then whirled in confusion, apparently overwhelmed by the conflicting scents from the search on Sunday night. By this point, the search party had grown to about 200, but the weather was not great. Not only did searchers have to struggle with the cold and fog, they had the issue of the terrain. The vast, wooded, and overgrown area was also riddled with holes, some big enough to hide a full-grown man. They had to watch for large tree roots as well as briars that would scratch wherever they touched. But none of this discouraged discouraged the searchers as as they continued to try and find Kurt. The search for Kurt would often be described as the most intensive woods search in the history of Maine. Jill, who was determined to find her baby, learned from a searcher about a top-secret plane that had been used in Vietnam to find gorillas in ditch jungle. She ran to the wardens and told them about it and demanded that it be used to find her baby, and it didn't matter what it would cost. Later that Monday night, the $10 million C... C-130H gunship and its nine-man crew lifted off from Pensacola, Florida. This would be the first time it was used in a civilian search. The plane was equipped with infrared sensors and low-light television sensors equipped for nighttime use. 
equipment so sensitive it could detect heat differential between a white median strip and a blacktop road at 10,000 feet. The C-130H flew a three-hour mission on Tuesday morning, but found no trace of Kurt. The plane was hampered by low-hanging hanging clouds and rain that grew so heavy that searchers couldn't find their way through the woods and had to pull out. The rain and fog continued on into the fourth day of the search, and hope that Kurt would be found alive began to dim. On the fifth day, the governor flew to the scene and promised the Newtons that he would do anything in his power to help find Kurt. At this point, the search had moved into the extraordinary stage of shoulder-to-shoulder searches of more than 2,000 acres. The C-130H aircraft returned and flew another mission, but it again failed to detect any signs of Kurt. The bloodhounds once again tried to pick up scent pools, which in good conditions could last for up to 10 days, but once again, they found nothing. To tell you how extensive and thorough this search was, Ron Newton had lost his pen twice in the rough and dense terrain, and both times it was found and returned to him. Psychics even became involved and offered their services, but they just caused more confusion than help. They all seemed to point in different directions. The search eventually went so far as to tear down structures in the area and sift through dirt. The dump was bulldozed and workers sifted through clumps of dirt. Uh, Teams of volunteers with shovels dug along the tote roads, but all of those efforts failed to reveal any clues about Kurt's possible whereabouts. Eventually, The lead investigators announced that they were no longer asking for volunteers. The search would continue until Wednesday, September 10th, 13 days after Kurt's disappearance. On September 10th, though, the governor extended the search another two days. The search efforts officially ended at dusk on Friday, September 12th, by the dump with 12 wardens, six state troopers, 75 volunteers, making a final mournful shoulder-to-shoulder sweep. In the end, over 3,000 searchers had, had taken part and absolutely nothing had been found. Ron and Jill stayed two more weeks before they had to return to Manchester to put Kimberly into the first grade. But then they began their weekend journeys to Chain of Ponds to search through the woods, just the two of them. Together, the Newtons posted missing signs deep into the woods, warning hunters to report any unusual uh, activity or signs. And And then the snow came. At that point, Ron had to use his snowmobile to take him deep into the uh, backcountry until winter grew too harsh, and even he was forced to say, enough is enough. But by that point, the Newtons had drawn the conclusion that Kurt wasn't in the woods, and he had probably never been there at all. They felt that somehow he had been taken and was probably still safe. Investigators said that from the beginning, they had never discounted the idea that Kurt may have been abducted. The issue in this disappearance is that there was also no indication that Kurt wasn't in the woods. So a team of investigators tried to be as thorough as possible with Kurt's case. 
They interviewed everyone known to be at the campground, and they even used polygraphs uh, when in doubt. One camper had initially reported that uh, she had seen a white station wagon roaring out of the campground. She said it left a cloud of smoke behind it, and she claimed it was close to the time after Kurt disappeared. But no such car was ever registered at the campground, and no one else reported seeing that car. So they pulled her back in for further questioning, and then she claimed that she may have been mistaken. Experienced trackers even went out into the campground area, but they could find no evidence of recent vehicle traffic on the logging road beyond where Ron Newton had been cutting wood, which was the only road available for a quote-unquote backdoor abduction. There was also a report that a captive bear that was often teased by area children might have been released a few miles from the campground just shortly before Kurt had gone missing. Experts said it was possible for a bear to quickly carry Kurt out of the area, but it would be highly unlikely that there would be no evidence of that happening. So police also sent a teletype with Kurt's description throughout the U.S. and Canada. And some reports did come in, including a man in Connecticut. He said he had just returned from camping in the Canadian Rockies. There, he had seen a small, blonde-haired boy staring at him with a curious expression. The man said that he was struck by how nervous the boy and the man that was with him seemed to be with each other. The man swore that the boy was the same boy on Kurt Newton's missing, uh, missing poster. In that same week, a call came from Vermont. Two waitresses there were positive that they had seen Kurt in their restaurant. A detective went to Vermont and found that boy, but as you would guess it, it wasn't Kurt. So four months after Kurt's disappearance, a call came from New Orleans. The call said a small, blonde-haired boy of maybe three or four had been found wandering in the French Quarter. The boy was very shy, and he only responded to names with a K sound, like Kenny or Kurt. The Newtons raced to Boston to view a recording of the child, but as they watched it, they immediately knew it wasn't Kurt. That boy was later identified as the abandoned son of a Missouri woman who was hitchhiking out west. The boy's name turned out to be Clifford. So while Jill was still unsure about where she thought her son was, she took it as her mission to make sure his picture was seen by everyone in the U.S. and Canada. Initially, the Newtons went door-to-door like traveling salesmen. They even drove to Quebec City and stopped at every gas station and store to pass out posters. While they were getting getting Kurt's picture out, uh, this method quickly became exhausting. So they went home and determined determined that they were going to begin a large mailing campaign. So with help from their friends in the printing trade, their basement soon overflowed with more than 75,000 posters stacked in every possible area. Then, They got phone books from every major metropolitan area in the U.S. and Canada. Every night, 20 to 30 friends would gather to help. Ron would buy stamped envelopes by the thousands, and their own home uh, soon became an assembly line. Eventually, the Newtons considered that Kurt would be in uh, school age soon, and he would have to be 
uh, you, he would have to go to school somewhere. So after about six months of nightly correspondence, they compiled a list of every superintendent in every school district in the United States. They worked state by state, sending a letter asking that the picture be posted for two years and included five posters to the superintendents. It took six months of nightly gatherings to finish, and then they started all over again in Canada. They ended up spending well over $5,000 um, on mailing costs alone. They did get some letters back, but they were mostly filled with sympathy and prayers and nothing that led to Kurt. Time did pass, and the Newtons realized that they... <clears throat> that the uh, picture of Kurt at four probably didn't look anything like Kurt at six or eight or 12 or 18. They still held on to the hope that one day Kurt would tell a teacher or somebody that he remembered his mom and dad and sister and that he would somehow end up right back in their arms. But he still hasn't yet. Yet. This is where you come in. If you believe you know Kurt Ronald Newton or maybe you know information about his disappearance or the location of his remains, please contact the Maine State Police and finally, finally give Kurt's parents um, some, some closure and maybe this story a happy ending. Oh, so that's, that case was a pretty long one, um, but let's keep trucking along. Uh, Kathy's di Kathy disappeared in 1971, and Kurt disappeared in 1975. This case also takes place in 1975. This is case number 4808DMME in the Doe Network, and case number MP36428 in NamUs. It is also on the Charlie Project. This is the case of Ludger R. Bellinger. Ludger was born on November 5th of 1950, and he was 25 at the time of his disappearance. He would be 69 now. He is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. He stood around 5'7 or 5'8 and between 125 and 165 pounds. He was last seen wearing a red and black checked or, uh, plaid jacket, a blaze orange hat, green rubber hunting boots, and either blue jeans, um, green cotton pants, or navy blue dickies. He also goes by Luge or Luigi. In 1975, Luge had been married to his wonderful wife for four years, and they had three daughters together. They lived in a home in Washington, Maine, and Luge was a, a heavy equipment mechanic, and his wife was a waitress. At 9 a.m. on November 25th of 1975, Luge's wife and brother dropped him off about a half a mile from their home on Route 105. He was carrying a 30-30 rifle because he was going deer hunting. He told his wife and his brother that he'd be back around noon, and he needed to be back around that time because his wife had to go to work. He never showed up at home. So I don't know how long... Uh, they waited to report him missing, but they do, and the search begins. But the extensive searching in that area um, turned up no sign of Luge or his rifle. What they did find, though, were drag marks. 
Investigators began to theorize that Luge had in fact killed a deer while hunting that morning and dragged the deer to the roadside. Once Luger reached the road, it is believed that he and the deer were picked up by a passing motorist. There was no indication that Luger uh, had a reason to just disappear from his life. By all accounts, he loved his wife and his daughters, and he was happy. So investigators very quickly rule that possibility as being the least likely scenario. His young wife felt that her husband had been murdered possibly over the deer um, that he had killed. So while investigators are searching that area of the woods where he dragged, uh, where they found those uh, deer drag marks, um, they end up finding a receipt. They did manage to track down the owner of the receipt, and he was a man from Camden who is ref who they refer to only as Suspect A. It doesn't say, uh, but I imagine that uh, finding this receipt and identifying the owner of it is the catalyst for the search of this guy's vehicle, or at least the vehicle that he was in at the time. Some accounts say that it was a 1965 Buick Special. During this initial search of the vehicle, they found a single deer hair stuck to the hood ornament. They also noted that the interior had been washed and the rear seat was missing. I also found something that claims that they found a piece of buckshot with human hair and tissue attached. Uh, DNA testing wasn't as readily available in 1975, so testing wasn't done on that piece of buckshot. So it has never been tied to Luger if that evidence does actually exist. So police really don't have enough evidence to bring charges against Suspect A. But when they interview Suspect A initially, he said he and a man from Portland referred to as Suspect B were hunting in the same area of Washington on the day Luger disappeared. But they claim that they never saw a hunter dragging a deer near the road. Some time passes as investigators are working on Luger's case. But less than a year after his disappearance, Suspect A dies from injuries sustained in an explosion at his house. Three years later, though, a third man, who I'll only refer to as Charles, told police that he had some information. Charles claimed that he had been drinking with Suspect B uh, when Suspect B told him that he had shot Luger with a shotgun as he sat in the backseat of the car after they had gotten into an altercation over the deer. Uh, Charles said that Suspect B told him that he and Suspect A had been doing some drugs when they came across Ludger and picked him up on the side of the road. Now, it's unknown if they re-interviewed Suspect B at this point, but it is known that in January of 1985, investigators bring the case to the Attorney General. At that point, though, the Attorney General says that some further investigation needs to be done and more evidence collected before they could present the case to a grand jury. At at that point in time, Charles was already deceased, so they couldn't go back to him. But they do try and they uh, re-interview some people and get another search warrant for that car. 
They did see some pieces of the car for testing, but the crime lab didn't find the presence of blood on any of the pieces that they collected. And that's the last we know in regards to the investigation. I, I assume they still don't have enough evidence to present it to a grand jury for indictment, but I do believe suspect B is still alive. Finding Ludger's body, um, I'm sure, would be super, super helpful to the case, though. On June 20th um, of 2001, I'm sorry. <coughs> Yeah, so on June 20th of 2001, a judge declared Luger dead based on the extensive searches and investigation over that 26-year period. His wife actually sought the declaration because after all that time, um, she was finally ready to remarry. She does still very much advocate for her husband's case, and you can tell that she still loves him. Um, it has to be so painful for her to have no closure in a situation where her husband just vanishes. And she was left to raise their three daughters on her own. And she can't explain to them where their dad is. I really do hope that I see closure to this case in my lifetime. But more importantly, I hope that his wife sees it in hers. If you know anything about the disappearance of Ludger R. Bellinger, please contact the Maine State Police. So, <clears throat> and now we're on to case number four, and let's move out of the 70s and into the 80s. I think the rest of the cases aren't going to be as extensive as, as the first and second case. So this case is case number uh, 374DFME in the Doe Network, case number MP3976, in NamUs, and it is on the Charlie Project. This is a juvenile case, so the NCMEC number is 603370. You may recall hearing uh, something about this case almost a year ago because there was a recent update, but this is the case of Kimberly Ann Morrow. Kimberly was born on January 20, 21st of 1969 and was 17 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 51 now. She is a Caucasian female with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was five foot seven and 135 pounds. She was last seen wearing a white short sleeve blouse, blue jeans, uh, white high top sneakers, and a man's class ring with Mike 87 and Mike Staples engraved on it. In 1986, Kimberly lived in Jay, Maine with her mother, father, and two older sisters. She went to school at Jay High School and participated in gymnastics and cheerleading there. She liked writing poetry and sunbathing, and she wanted to be a model when she grew up. She had actually uh, become a contestant in the Miss Maine beauty pageant. She also had a boyfriend at the time of her disappearance, which uh, um, I believe is where that men's class ring comes in. Kimberly had actually gotten into an argument with her boyfriend on May 11th of 1986 and canceled her plans with him to attend her junior prom. Instead, she decided to go out with a female friend. While out and about, they met up with two 25-year-old male acquaintances. At about 11 p.m., Kimberly returned to her home on Jewel Street, but only for a short minute. The only person awake in the house was one of her sisters, 
And Kimberly told her that she would be back in about an hour. She left her keys and purse and headed out the door. Her sister watched as she got into a late model white Pontiac Trans Am with one of the, the men that she had been out with earlier. It was suspected that they were headed to a party with underage drinking. When Kimberly hadn't returned by, home by the following morning, of course her family begins to worry. They eventually contact police and they begin their investigation. They track down the man that she had been with who was identified as Brian Inman. Inman didn't deny that he had been with Kimberly on that night, but he said it was about uh, 3.45 on the morning of May 12th when he dropped Kimberly off. He said that Kimberly was still pretty upset about the fight she had with her boyfriend, and she asked him to drop her off on Jewel Street about a half a mile from her house. He said she told him that she wanted to be alone and to walk the remaining distance to her house. The investigation continues, but there aren't very many clues or any evidence in the case. Police do believe that Kimberly dis Kimberly's disappearance is the result of foul play and that she didn't just walk away. They don't say much about the ongoing investigation, but they do make it known that there are two prime suspects in her case. They do not release the names of those suspects, though. Brian Inman is, of course, considered a person of interest in Kimberly's case, but they have never had enough evidence to charge him in her disappearance. Kim's father, of course, doesn't believe Inman's story about that night, and I think he has a pretty good reason why. He said that Kim would have never asked to get out of the, uh, get out of the vehicle and walk in the dark, and is... <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, anyway, he says that Kim would have never gotten out of the car and asked to walk. And it's for two, two reasons. And I think they're really good reasons. Number one, it was cold that night. And surely she wouldn't have wanted to walk for a half a mile in the cold, even if she was upset. And number two, more importantly, Kimberly was afraid of the dark. Uh, here's my two cents real quick. Inman saying that Kim was still upset about the argument with her boyfriend really doesn't seem logical to me. A considerable amount of time had passed between the argument she had with her boyfriend and the time she had returned home. Not to mention she was hanging out with her girlfriend and two older guys, so surely that would have cheered her up. If she was still upset, though, I don't believe she would have left her house again when she returned at 11. If she was upset, she would have just hidden her room and maybe cried or even talked to her sisters. But anyway, back to the story. So some agencies um, actually speculate um, that Kimberly actually disappeared from Livermore, Maine. Um, they too are investigating Kim's case in case she was actually there the last time she was seen. Two years after Kimberly's disappearance, her mother died from cancer without knowing where her daughter was. Kim's father is still living in that house on Jewel Street, waiting for his daughter to return. Every spring, her dad renews, repairs, and replaces his daughter's missing posters so that she and her case are not forgotten. Kimberly was declared deceased in 1993, but her whereabouts still remain a mystery. 
2015, authorities searched a five-acre property belonging to Brian Inman. That search unfortunately resulted in no further clues. But in 2019, apparently investigators received four to five tips within a six-month period, which is a lot for a cold case. I'm not sure what caused those new tips to come in, but everyone is excited that they did. One of those tips in particular, uh, one of those tips particularly excites Kim's dad and investigators, but they never say what the tip was, only that it was basically provided by someone on their deathbed. Um, but that's the last that I could find on that uh, update. Which doesn't mean that it is that it provi- that tip provided nothing. It just means that they are still working the tip currently, maybe. So keep your ear out for any developments in Kimberly's case. I feel like this case is so close to some kind of resolve. So if you have any information that can assist in pushing it along, please don't hesitate to call the main state police. Uh, Now let's move into the end of the 1990s with our fifth case. Here we go with Doe Network case number uh, 3783DMME and name is case MP19762. This is also on the Charlie Project. This is the case of Angel Antonio Tony Torres. Tony was 21 at the time of his disappearance and he would be 42 now. He is a Hispanic male with brown hair and brown eyes. He was five foot eight and between 150 and 160 pounds. As far as clothing goes, it is only provided that he was wearing a large gold Gucci chain necklace uh, with a large gold crucifix and serpent pendant. Tony does wear contact lenses and he is of Puerto Rican descent and can speak fluent Spanish as well as English. So in 1999, Tony was a student at Framingham State University in Massachusetts. There, he was majoring in business and psychology and minoring in Spanish. He, was re- he had recently moved into an apartment in Bear, Massachusetts with his girlfriend. He loved sports and his ultimate dream was to own his own sporting goods store. Tony's life surely seemed to be moving forward in a positive direction. Tony had ambition, and a bright future seemed to be ahead of him. But I'm telling you about him, so obviously it doesn't turn out as planned. So the last time Tony was seen was in uh, Bidford, Maine at 2 a.m. on Friday, May 21st of 1999. Tony and a friend, Jason Carney, had traveled from Massachusetts to the area of Bidford to visit with some friends and conduct some business. What business, you may ask? Well, together, Tony and Jason had been selling drugs in the area of Bidford as well as the nearby towns of Seiko and Old Orchard Beach. I assume that Tony was just trying to make some quick money while on summer break, but I don't uh, want the fact that he was selling drugs to take away from Tony's potential or devalue his disappearance. So on the night of Tony's disappearance, Jason says that he and Tony were at a friend's apartment in Bedford, in Bidford. He said they then left to go meet with some customers who had complained about the quality of narcotics that they had been sold. 
The friends at that apartment said that Jason returned sometime later, but he was alone and he appeared disheveled and upset. Jason said he walked with Tony to a nearby convenience store called The Whistle Stop at about 2 a.m. He said there, Tony was looking for a ride either home or to North Conway, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, which would be about 30 minutes from, I believe, his parents' home in Denmark, Maine. Jason said a man in a red truck had agreed to drive Tony to his desired destination. He was allegedly never seen again after this point. And this is according to Jason. Tony wasn't reported missing until May 24th, though, so the jump on the investigation was actually lost. It took so long because no one knew that he was actually missing. That was um, until his girlfriend called his parents and asked if they knew where he was because he hadn't shown up for work and his place of employment had contacted her. His parents didn't know that anything was wrong, but of course, they hadn't seen him, so they become worried, and of course, they report him missing. So police start investigating, and they soon found out that two of the last people to see Tony were Stephen and Daniel Sanborn. Coincidentally, the Sanborn brothers were the last people to see 15-year-old Ashley Aaron Olet, who was found strangled in Scarborough in February of 1999, so just a few months before Tony's disappearance. The Sanborn brothers went to high school with Ashley, and Stephen Sanborn had dated her briefly. She was at their house the night she was killed. Of course, the Sanborn brothers are considered possible suspects in Ashley's case, but they have never been charged. Tony had told his parents that he knew Ashley uh, Olet and that he was pretty much that he pretty much knew who had killed her. And there is a theory that Tony was killed because of his alleged knowledge about Ashley's death. That theory has never been verified and Ashley's case is still unsolved to this day. Apparently, another theory in Tony's case is that Tony's disappearance is one uh, is of course, drug-related. Investigators do believe that Jason Carney was involved in Tony's disappearance and he, and that he may not have been truthful about the drug deal. The thing is, though, um, Jason Carney moved to Rhode Island sometime after Tony went missing, and then in 2015, he died of a suspected drug overdose at the age of 36. Investigators do believe that foul play is involved in Tony's disappearance, but without any evidence or witnesses, the case remains unsolved. He was declared uh, deceased sometime after his disappearance, but his case remains open. So if you can contribute um, to Angel Antonio Torres' case being solved, please contact the Maine State Police. Now we're moving into the 2000s with the sixth case this week. Case number 4884DMME in the Doe Network and case number MP98 in NamUs. And of course, it is also on the Charlie Project. This is the disappearance of Jeremy Ted Alex. Jeremy is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. He was born on April 8th of 1976, so he 
just had a birthday. He was 28 at the time of his disappearance, and he would be 44 now. He was between 5'5 and 5'7 and weighed 150 pounds. He was last seen wearing an olive green flannel Timberland sweatshirt, blue jeans or or brown corduroy pants, and sneakers of unknown color or brand. He was also carrying a red backpack. Jeremy uh, smoked hand-rolled cigarettes at the time of his dis- at the time of his disappearance, and I will just mention to you that Jeremy had been addicted to narcotics for the majority of his adult life up until his disappearance. <laughs> this case will be pretty short, um, unfortunately. Um, So in April of 2004, Jeremy was a freelance gardener and he and his girlfriend were moving in together in a house on Harbor Road in Northport, Maine. On the morning of April 24th, 2004, Jeremy met up with his girlfriend and he moved some of their items into the new house. Now what happened between the morning, that morning and about 520 that afternoon, I couldn't find out, but... At 5.20 p.m. on uh, that day, uh, one of Jeremy's former high school teachers who lived on Pond, uh, Pound Hill Road near Bluff Road saw him coming out of the woods near her home. This lady's house is about a mile and a half from Jeremy's new home, the one that he was moving into. She says that Jeremy was acting paranoid and erratic, and that he appeared to be hallucinating. He told her that bad guys were trying to hurt him. The lady's husband tried to keep Jeremy there while she called the police, but he took off before the police could get there. Shortly after this interaction, a motorist saw Jeremy crossing Route 1, um, and that was the last confirmed sighting of Jeremy. The following day, Jeremy's van was found in a small parking area off uh, Pound Hill Road on property that belonged to the Waldo County Humane Society. The keys were still in the vehicle and so was Jeremy's phone, but Jeremy was nowhere around. Several searches of that area produced no evidence of his whereabouts. So in September, only a few months later, a contractor in Jackson, Maine, about 45 minutes from Northport, reported seeing a man matching Jeremy's description. The man um, said that this guy, uh, I'm sorry, the man said that he was working on a house when the man he saw, um, who had a sweater tied around his waist, came out of the woods. The man was acting strangely. He wouldn't speak and he did not seem to understand anything that was being said to him. The contractor offered the man some food, but the man refused it. A person that was living nearby to this area said that he also saw the man, and he too believed that it was Jeremy. The second guy said that the man walked into his garage, but wouldn't answer any questions, and he eventually walked away after he was told to leave. So these sightings have not been confirmed, but they are considered credible. Um, Jeremy's parents say that he has never left without warning. They also say that Jeremy has the skills to survive in the woods if he had to. 
Now, I mentioned beforehand that Jeremy was a drug user. User. I did find an article that says that Jeremy's girlfriend had found cocaine and heroin in the house that they shared. Uh, given Jeremy's behavior, I do not think that it is a stretch of the imagine, imagination to believe that he was under the influence of something. But that behavior could also be indicative of a psychological break. Jeremy's family believes that he met with foul play. I'm not sure what the police are thinking about this case. There was also something I found that, uh, that said that about four years after Jeremy's disappearance, a woman found his ID and money. The claim is that it washed up on the shore outside of this woman's house, but she never made the connection to, to Jeremy and his disappearance. Once again, I don't know if this is true, but if it is, it would have been nice for the police to be able to search that area where it washed up. Uh, Jeremy is still considered missing, and I don't think there are too many leads in this case. Um, I don't want to sound cynical, but also I don't know if the police are investigating uh, Jeremy's case too thoroughly, considering that he... Um, was a drug user and I don't want to sound like that but a lot of times that's the the cold hard truth that um, investigators don't look at um, people who have drug addictions as thoroughly as they might look at somebody else but I'm not going to get into that um, if you do know something about Jeremy's disappearance once again please contact the Maine State Police so let's just keep it on rolling shall we uh we're on number seven now um and here we go with the disappearance of shirley Teresa moon atwood she is case number 3688 dfme in the doe network and case number mp23379 in namus she is also on the charlie project shirley is a caucasian female with brown hair and green eyes she was 35 at the time of her disappearance, and she would be around 48 now, if my calculations are correct. Um, she was 5 foot 2 and 105 pounds, so she was a very tiny woman. Shirley has a tattoo of a heart with leaves on her right shoulder. She had previously had a broken neck, so there would be some kind of damage uh, that you could detect via x-ray. Uh, she is also missing her right ring finger, which should be more distinguishable. This story is pretty short, but I wanted to tell it to you because of the odd circumstances. I'm just going to tell you this story pretty much from the Charlie Project profile because it is the most concise version and really one of the only things that I could find about her disappearance. So uh, Shirley was reported missing on July 15th of 2006 she has never been heard from again her vehicle was found abandoned after her disappearance but where they don't say uh, shirley was estranged from her husband shannon roy atwood at the time of her disappearance and had moved out of their home on route 23 in canaan maine shannon was still living in the home with another woman uh, cheryl murdoch Okay, so let me try and uh, clear this up. Um, so Shirley and her husband were separated. Shirley moved out of the house. 
Um, Shannon stayed in the house, but he moved another girl in um, named Cheryl Murdoch. So um, this Cheryl Murdoch, uh, Sh Shirley's husband's new girlfriend, uh, disappeared on July 27th, 12 days after Shirley disappeared. Her body was found in a wooded area off Scott Road in Canaan on August 11th. She had been murdered. So when authorities went to Shannon's home to question him about um, Cheryl's case and search his property, he barricaded himself inside, threatened the officers with a bow and arrow, and threatened to blow up the house. <laughs> they arrested him for criminal threatening, reckless conduct, and terrorizing, and he was sentenced to nine months in jail for those charges. In February of 2007, shortly before he was scheduled to be released from jail, Shannon was additionally charged with both um, Shirley and Cheryl's murders. Authorities believe Shirley was murdered sometime between March 15th and July 15th of 2006, so uh, that's a pretty large time frame. We're talking about a month here. Um, Shannon has a criminal history of burglary and theft, and was also convicted of aggravated assault on a previous girlfriend. The girlfriend stated he attacked her and threatened to murder her and bury her body in an isolated field. Authorities wanted to try Shannon for both women's murders at the same time, but a judge ruled that there had to be two separate trials. In November of 2007, prosecutors dropped the murder charge against Shannon in Shirley's presumed death. They stated that there was insufficient evidence to proceed to trial. The charge could be uh, refiled at a later date, though. So in July of 2008, Shannon was convicted of Cheryl Murdoch's murder in a bench trial. He was sentenced to 55 years to life in prison. Shirley, um, just some little back note, Shirley was having financial problems at the time of her disappearance. She had inherited a sizable amount of money and property from her grandfather uh, when she was a teenager, including her Route 23 residence. But in 2006, the government placed a lien on her residence for back taxes. Authorities never believed she left voluntarily. As, um, so basically, they're saying that they don't think that she left on her own because of that lien, though. So foul play is suspected in Shirley's case due to the circumstances involved and that circumstance being um, Shannon Atwood murdering his new girlfriend after his wife disappeared. Anyway, so that's the case of um, Shirley Teresa Moon Atwood. She is still she is still missing. Her case is unsolved. Her They don't have any body. Um, it is not believed that she disappeared on her own. Um, so if you know anything maybe about Shannon Atwood, um, or you know about the disappearance of Shirley Atwood, please contact the Maine State Police and help this case get solved. Okay, I feel like I've been talking to you for forever, and I am sorry. <laughs> I'm going to try and get this last case done quickly. Um, so this is the final case this week, and this is a juvenile case. 
Um, and perhaps you may have heard about this case because this has this was back in 2011 um, and it has been in the news recently so you may recall this name when you hear it um, here we go with case number MP 149050 in NAMIS and NC MEC number 1185956 this is also on the Charlie project this is the case of Ayla Bell Reynolds Ayla is a Caucasian female with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was born on April 4th of 2010 and was only one when she disappeared. She would be 10 now. She was only two foot nine and 30 pounds. She was last seen in a green onesie pajama uh, with, polka, with white polka dots and the phrase daddy's princess written on the front. Ayla's left arm was in a sling with a soft splint at the time of her disappearance. Okay, so this isn't, um, this is going to be something. So Ayla was last seen when her father, Justin DiPietro, uh, De put her to bed at her home on Violet Avenue in Waterville, Maine at 8 p.m. on December 16th of 2011. She apparently vanished during the night and has never been seen again. Her father called the police at 8.50 the next morning. DePetro, um, his sister, his girlfriend, and the women's two children, they, each woman had a, a child, uh, they were all at the residence the night that Ayla disappeared. Authorities maintain the baby's father has not been cooperative with the investigation and and they believe that the adults who were in the home that night are also withholding some information so investigators found Ayla's blood in multiple places in DePietro's home including her first floor bedroom and his basement bedroom which is where he slept that night with his girlfriend and his girlfriend's child his sister and his sister's child slept on the first floor, uh, so the same floor that Ayla would have been on. Ayla's mother, Trista Reynolds, was in a 10-day substance abuse treatment program when her daughter disappeared. The day before Ayla went missing, Trista had filed for sole custody of Ayla. Ayla had been placed with her father by the Maine Department of Health and Human Services two months prior to her disappearance. DePietro uh, claims that he did not know about Trista's custody bid um, before uh, Ayla went missing. So in April of 2012, police found some unspecified inf uh, items of interest behind the Hathaway Creative Center in Kinbeck, in the Kinbeck River, about a mile from DePietro's home. May 2012, nearly six months after Ayla vanished, authorities publicly stated that they believed she was dead, but did not um, believe she had been abducted, which doesn't really look that good, if you ask me. So Ayla was declared legally dead in 2017. The court recorded that she had died around the time that she was reported missing. In December 2018, seven years after her disappearance, Trista, uh, the mom, filed a wrongful death suit against DePietro, so uh, Ayla's father. 
although her suit seeks unspecified monetary sought unspecified monetary damages she stated the real goal of it was to get answers as to what happened to ayla and to recover her body DePietro maintained his innocence in his daughter's case and stated he had no idea where she is. He didn't respond to that wrongful death suit until May of 2019, so almost a year ago. But before then, his whereabouts had been unknown. In his response to Trista's filing, DePietro said that he was innocent of any wrongdoing in Ayla's disappearance and the blood that was found in the house was from... Uh, one time when Ayla was sick. So no one has been named a suspect in Ayla's disappearance, although something does look a little suspicious if you ask me. Her case remains unsolved, and uh, baby Ayla has still never been found. And it is so very sad. Um, I'm pretty sure that the um, main... State police are the point of contact for this case as well. But let me check real quick. Okay, so yeah, it is the main state police or the Waterville Police Department. Um, there is a lot of information about this case online. Uh, and this little girl is so, she's so cute. Um, if you want to see a picture of her, make sure y'all go like the Facebook page. Because I always post the pictures of the missing uh, on there when I release the new episode so that you'll know what I'm talking about when I talk about it. Um, so that <laughs> is it for this week. I have no scene again for you because honestly, I have no more energy. My tongue is numb. My mouth is dry. I can't keep going on. Um, so let's finish this up as usual with my very tiresome rant. If you like this episode or this whole podcast, please share it with your friends. Also, please go like, follow, favorite, rate, and or review on whatever platform you listen on if any of those are an option. iTunes and Apple Podcast listeners, please go rate this podcast with five stars if you haven't done so already. Uh, you can tell me uh, how you have big feet in the review as long as you give me those five stars. If you are not already doing so, please go like and follow the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash NTBSA podcast. On there, like I said, you can see the pictures of the cases um, that I cover as well as leave comments and messages or, and send me messages with case suggestions. So if you aren't on Facebook, um, but you have a case that you want to suggest to me to cover, you can email me at never to be seen again podcast at gmail.com. I also want to remind uh, you for those who are on the Facebook page and tell you for those who aren't that episode 20 is coming up. Um, and if you didn't see the Facebook post in episode 20, I'm covering Texas. Texas is a very huge state with a lot of missing cases. I think it's in the thousands. So, um, in an attempt <laughs> to make it easier for me, um, I asked for suggestions about the cases that are recommendations for the cases that y'all, that you wanted to hear covered on episode 20. Um, you can, you can still send those suggestions cause we're, uh, like two weeks out now. So we just, you still have time to get them in. 
Um, but send me your suggestions about cases in Texas because I really need the help with that one. Um, you can send those suggestions uh, via the Facebook page um, or to the email account uh, or to the email address. Either one, just make sure it gets to me if you want to hear about it. Um, so I think that's all I have for this week. And I'm pretty sure you're tired of listening, <laughs> listening to me. So um, thank you, as always, for continuing to listen to me talk about missing persons. I hope that I never fail to make you interested. Um, and I hope that you always come back to listen some more. Um, so thank you for this week. And I'll be back next week to tell you more about those never to be seen again.